All right, it's about that time. You guys are ready? All right. Everybody get enough to eat? That was good. Chicken and asparagus? I liked it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to request this dish again. Never know what you're going to get when you show up here for lunch on Tuesdays, but it's always going to be good. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 20 this week. Last week we looked at issues involving um, the concept of cities of refuge, and this whole section that we're in has to do with life and death and taking of life uh, when it's permitted, when it's not permitted, whether in warfare, whether in civil society. Uh, God's giving Israel, Moses rather, is giving Israel their ethic of life, how they're supposed to be when, when it comes to living in the land. And we, we're, we're pretty far removed from death in general. I mean, most of us are. We don't see it face to face. You know, like if somebody in our family passes away, we have whole people take care of that, you know, with, with uh, police and then <clears throat> people doing the embalming or the mortuary and the funeral director and all that. So it's like death, we're kind of distanced from it. But in the ancient Near East, it was a daily reality. I mean, if your family member died, you buried them physically. You know, you took care of the body. You were responsible for enacting justice. If somebody killed someone in your family, you were responsible or someone in your family for going and killing that person, tracking down the murderer. That's just how it worked in the ancient Near East. And so a lot of the stuff that we look at and we can't relate to or we find cringeworthy, we have to, we have to take a step back and put ourselves into the culture of the ancient Near East and look at it in that context. Then we can pull out principles that we find in it in that context and see how they apply in our context today through the passing of the new covenant, the old covenant into the new covenant. So it's, it's complex when you're doing Old Testament ethics, but it's really important because the Old Testament gives us God's heart for His people in how they were to live among the others. And so this chapter, chapter 20 now, he's going to turn from uh, concepts of like criminal law that we looked at last week and uh, the justice system. Now he's going to talk about now when life is taken in battle, when there's actually war happening. Because Israel, remember, they left Egypt as a group of slaves. They left Egypt as a, you know, they've been in slavery for 400 years. They weren't anything. Uh, they were just a mass group of people, mostly Israelites, but some other mixed multitudes, non-Israelites that came out with them and joined them, people like Caleb and his family. So there was, they were just this hodgepodge group. And over the year last year, we saw through the book of Numbers how the whole purpose of Numbers was to transform Israel into God's army, His fighting, moving military force. That's why the book's called Numbers, because it's built around two military census figures that are given in that book. And so this new generation now is the generation that's grown up as God's army that are going to go in for a purpose. And the purpose, as we've seen all the way since Genesis 15, the purpose is to be an instrument of judgment against these seven peoples of the Canaanites. These specific peoples in the land of Canaan that God was bringing judgment upon and He was going to use Israel to do it. And so... It's not like God was saying, now Israel, you, you're my people, so whoever you attack, I'm on your side. Uh, it wasn't like that. Or, or, yeah, whatever you decide to go do, Israel, I'll always be fighting there with you. It wasn't like that. It was, they were called for a job, and that job was to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan, those seven peoples, <clears throat> to drive them out, to completely wipe out all cultural remnants 
of Canaanite evil. And, and we've looked at that evil over the past couple of years. We've seen the types of evils that the Canaanites were practicing that God wanted nothing to do with when it came to Israel. But that didn't mean that Israel, once the Canaanites were driven out, that Israel would just then stop having any kind of army or any kind of military power and they would just sit there and everything would be great. No, they would still be a nation surrounded by other nation states, other armies, and there would be times when they would have to go into battle. But there were two different types of battles that Israel would do. One would be battles uh, against enemies who were far away, who were either threatening to invade or who had crept back into the domain that Israel was given by God to rule. And they would have to go fight those battles. But then the other would be these specific battles called harem that we've talked about before where God would say the, this people group are to be utterly wiped out and that nothing of their memory is to remain because they are part of this group of people that I'm bringing judgment on. And so those were two different types of warfare and they had two different means by which that they would be carried out. So chapter 20 says, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. There's the first thing that, to note is we don't think much of horses and chariots, but in the ancient Near East, horses and chariots were the determination between a winner and a loser. The army that had chariots is the army that won, period. There were no exceptions. If you had horses and chariots, that's the equivalent of uh, a, a, an army fighting with muskets versus an army fighting with tanks. That's the, that's, chariots were tanks in the ancient Near East. So you didn't win against armies that had... That's why Pharaoh, that's why Egypt was such a powerhouse. They had massive amounts of armies with the horses and chariots. <clears throat> Nobody could step to them. Same thing with the Assyrians later. They'll rise up in their chariots and their horses, their cavalry. That was what determined your strength in battle. Israel has no horses or chariots. And so what God is telling them, first thing is, hey, when you see these armies, when, when you go up, relax. Yes, they're going to be bigger than you. Yes, they're going to be stronger than you. But relax, because it's not you that are fighting. I'm the one fighting. That's what God is trying to instill all throughout. Moses wants them to realize, God, who overthrew Egypt? The largest chariot army in the world. God. He did it. Israel didn't raise a single weapon against them. And all of Egypt's horses and chariots were cast into the sea back in the Exodus account. <clears throat> so God's ingraining that. This generation wasn't alive when that happened. Most of this generation, if they were, they were kids, or some of them even toddlers. But they, didn't, they, don't, they may not even remember 40 years prior when this happened. But, so Moses is reminding them, hey, remember what God did to the mightiest chariot army that, the, on earth. So relax when you face, come up against what you see as an enemy that's overwhelming. So he said, verse 2, when you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. And this is what he'll say. Hear, O Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and give you victory. This is the theology of Israel's war. Is Israel, if they are fighting a just war, if they are, now there were wars that Israel would try to fight later that the prophets from God would say, no, don't go fight this war because God's not going to help you. But this is assuming that they're fighting a war that God is with them in, a just war, then God's going to be the one who fights for them. 
this is what, what God's trying to ingrain in this section. It's never going to be about how strong your army is, Israel. It's always going to be about how strong I am and how strong your faith and obedience to me is. Because remember, Deuteronomy is a covenant ratification document. If you're just joining us, we've talked about this all year since January. Deuteronomy is a restating of the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And as a covenant document, God is the covenant maker, the suzerain, the king. Israel is the vassal, the one who will serve the king. And if Israel serves the king faithfully, then the king will protect the vassal from all their enemies. This is just declaring that to Israel. Israel's job is simple. Love God. Keep the commandments. God takes care of everything else. He's the great general. He's the great suzerain. He's the great king. And so that's the first thing before anything else. Before, and it's going to get crazy now. We saw a couple of weeks ago God's economy. How God said in Israel economic things are going to be different because I'm the one who provides your rain. I'm the one who provides your crops. I'm the one who gives you material blessing. So you are going to therefore do what the world would consider to be crazy. You're going to give to people when they need it. You're going to lend to them freely. You're going to, like, God was establishing that His economy and His order in society is different than what we would consider common wisdom. And nowhere is it more clear than what you're about to read. So, Verse 4, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for your enemy against your enemies. Verse 5, the officer shall say to the army, this is the worst advice ever given in military history from a military point of view, has anyone built a new house and not begun to use it yet? Some translations say dedicated it, but there's, there's no evidence that Israel dedicated houses and the verb can mean dedicate or begin to use or put into use. Um, however you translate it, has anyone built a new house and not yet lived in it, let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else may live in it, use it, dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. This is from Leviticus 19. If, if you remember two years ago when we were reading Leviticus 19, the rule God said was when you plant a vineyard, when you plant an orchard, first three years you don't harvest it. Three years, that thing is to let grow naturally. In the fourth year, you harvest it. All of the fruit is dedicated to God. The fifth year, the fifth harvest, then you can start enjoying the fruits of your vineyard. So this is a five-year process is what it's talking about. Not like, oh, I planted something. Let me go home and get the first grapes from my vine or whatever. This is a lengthy, specific five-year process. Same thing with anyone building a house. It doesn't just mean like, I built a house. Building a house means starting a household. Building a house means creating and becoming head of a household. We've seen that phrase, the head of the father's house. Um, the, the word related to dedication in here is related to, uh, is used elsewhere to describe men who belong to a house, like Abraham's retain, retainers, his hired servants, his trained men that went to battle. They were members of his house, using the same phrase. So this is not just about like, oh, I built a house, let me go live in it for a day, now I go back to battle. This is, no, has anybody built their house? Has anyone created, is, is someone just starting to enter into that phase of life where they become the patriarch? So these are momentous life events. It's not everyday things, but it's like 
This is a big thing in life. Big stages in life is, is starting a household, is um, planting a vineyard or, or, or an orchard. And then the third one, uh, verse 7, has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. So, pledged in marriage, this is the betrothal. This is the getting engaged period where then you would get engaged. And typically, that would happen as you were then going to build your house. And then you would bring your wife to your house that had been built. So these are life events. Major life events. And God's saying, if anybody's done any of these things, send them home. Because if they die in battle, somebody else will... It's, it's crazy advice if you're trying to get an army. Because... These are the very, this is the demographic you want in your army. The people that marry, people that build houses, people that plant vineyards, typically in the ancient Near East, in Israel, were those who were in the prime of their adulthood. They were, they were the men you would, they were exactly the men you would want in battle. They're young, they're healthy, they're strong, they're vibrant. That's who you want on your front lines. And God's saying, yeah, send them all home. Because life is not about serving military might. Life is not, in God's economy at least, life is not about having the fittest and the strongest army. It's about having the most loyal army. And the purpose is so that the people that you're fighting for can enjoy the life in the land that God is bringing them to. So life in the land takes priority over military ability. Now that doesn't work in the world because the world is not in covenant with the one true God who can overthrow any army on the face of the earth. But Israel is. And so God's calling them. This is an act of faith. Just like tithing is an act of faith. It's very scary when you're living year to year, crop to crop, for, for you to take a whole day off and not do any work. That's a very scary thing. Because common wisdom would say, well, if you do that, your kids are going to starve. But God's economy, again, God's saying, you've got to trust Me. You've got to trust Me. You've got to, he's taking away any excuse that Israel could have that their victories are because of their might. He, he wants them to realize you do not trust in horses and chariots. You trust in the name of the Lord your God. And this, is, this was what it meant to be in covenant with God as His people. And then he adds one more exception. Then the officer shall add, is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. So the last exemption is, hey, anybody just scared? If you're just scared and don't want to fight, go. There's no punishment. There's no hard feelings. There's no bullying into battle. You know, like in World War II, um, on the Russian front, soldiers that didn't want to go into the machine guns of the Germans and Turn around, they, the Russians would actually shoot their own people who fled from battle. I, I don't know which is worse. Either way, you're not getting the best people. You're getting somebody fighting, going that way because they'll shoot me if I go that way, but they're shooting at me if I go that way. That's a terrible military strategy. But what God is saying here is completely opposite. It's like, okay, if you're scared, go home. That makes no sense if you're trying to build a mighty army. But it makes all the sense in the world if you're trying to lead a covenant army. Because a covenant army knows that they're not the ones that are responsible for the victory. All they have to do is be faithful to God and believe that He's giving them that victory that He's calling them to. He takes care of everything else. 
So this is not a, a handbook for how Israel is supposed to fight as much as this is Israel's theology of war, theology of combat. This is the ethic that's supposed to underlie how they approach battle if they're walking in covenant with God. And so then when the officers have finished speaking to the army, they'll appoint, they shall appoint commanders over it of those who are left. All right, now here how we're gonna now we're gonna regiment the army, now we're gonna divide up, now we're gonna do battle plans, and we work with who's left. Later in the book of Judges, a very famous story. They're gonna Israel's gonna go fight against the Midianites. And so Gideon musters this army. And it's a few thousand people, and God says, mm, it's too many. And he, he whittles down the army until he gets down to about three hundred dudes against an entire, I think, ten thousand Midianites or however many. And that's who God says, okay, now the army is sufficiently small enough and unarmed and weak enough to where when we win, which we will, God will get the glory. It will ingrain in Israel, who had forgotten God by the time Gideon comes on the scene, it will ingrain into Israel, they're not the ones who are winning the battle. It's God. And it's contingent upon their faith in God and their loyalty to God, not their military might. So then, now that the army is whittled down to probably the people you don't want to be leading your army at this point, verse 10, when you march up to attack a city, and remember, we've talked about this before, city doesn't mean like Charlotte. Uh, uh, the, the Hebrew term city, ear, it means like a fortified, it's like a, a place where people live that has military surroundings, walls. The, a better translation or, or way to think of it would be like a garrison, like a, a, a fort if you will, like if you've ever been to any of the Civil War forts or the Revolutionary War forts, think of something like that rather than like a city that we're used to. Um, But when you march up to attack one of these, make its people an offer of peace. Literally it says, ask shalom. Like go up to them and offer shalom, peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be, and the phrase in NIV, subject to forced labor and shall work for you, um, what this is describing, they will become your vassals. The people will become to you what you are to God. You'll be, you'll be the suzerain. You go, you make an offer of peace first. And if the city is like, alright, yeah, we don't want any trouble, peace, then they become your vassal. Now in the ancient Near East, they would not only become your vassal, but you would also do all kinds of horrible things and you could loot them and you could do all this stuff to the city because you were the one that won. And they just cowered in fear and so they were yours to dominate. But for Israel, it's like, no, you're, they'll, they'll work for you. They'll be forced labor. They'll be vassals is the way to think of it. But that's the only thing they're allowed. If they refuse to make peace, however, and they engage you in battle, so this is a city, this is a fort that actually says, no, we're going to fight this thing out. Lay siege to the city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, not if, but when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the males in it, all the men who are fighting, not men, women, and children. As for the women, the children, the livestock, everything else in the city, you may take these as spoils for yourselves. You may use these spoils the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. And literally it says you may eat these spoils, and and that's a figure of speech to eat. It doesn't mean like you're going to eat the people. <laughs> That's cannibalism. No. It means this now becomes yours to use in your society. This becomes part of you. Uh, you may use the spoils the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you're to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. So these are 
in battle in general, this is how Israel is to operate. Lay siege, offer terms of peace. If they accept, fine. You're now our vassal, we're your suzerain, and we're under the great suzerain, no problem. If they don't, and they're going to fight, then we're going to fight. And all of your fighting men who fight back will die because God will give us this victory in this battle. And if that's the case, the end result is still the same. You'll still be taken, incorporated into our society, and you'll be like Israel's borders will expand. Or Israel will get back the borders if it's an enemy that's come in. But this is just what we would describe as normal warfare. Now there's special warfare. This is for the nations that are nearby. And this is for the Canaanites specifically. However, in the cities of the nations your Lord God is giving you as an inheritance, that's the Canaanites, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. And that verb, we've talked about that in Leviticus. We've talked about it uh, in Exodus. We've talked about it in Numbers. That's the verb cherem. Cherem means to dedicate entirely to God, usually by a burnt offering. Like pile everything together and completely obliterate it. it it's, it's one of the harshest forms of judgment, but it's one of the most total forms of destruction, which is why the NIV translates it as totally destroyed. But it has a sacrificial element to it, or, or like, not sacrificial, it has a, like a dedicatory, like dedicating, completely giving over to God, taking, removing from the sphere of public use entirely is what Cherem has as an idea behind it. And this is what they're to do to these specific peoples that they're going into uh, overthrow. So completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Those detestable things we saw a couple of chapters ago. Things like burning your children alive as a sacrifice to your God. Things like having ritual sex in order to hope that your crops will grow better that year. You know, all of these practices that the Canaanites did, God is saying, I want no trace of that in your society. And, and the time has come. The sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. Quoting Genesis 15, or alluding back to Genesis 15. The time has come. Their time is over. But even within this, what you're going to see when we talk about harem passages and, and these these harsh statements in the Old Testament, there are always exceptions. And that's something to keep in mind. There are phrases that are used that aren't literal. So the phrase, leave alive nothing that breathes, that's a stock phrase. That's a figure of speech used in the Bible. And it means basically totally destroy. But it doesn't literally mean not leave alive anything that breathes. We know this because we see how this term is used periodically in the Old Testament where it'll say, and Joshua put to the sword the entire city, man, woman, children, left nothing alive that breathes, blah, 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 blah. And in the very next book, Judges, now Israel had left the people in the land and the ones who remained and were not killed became a thorn in Israel's side and began to persecute, blah, blah, blah. So Scripture itself lets us know that leave alive nothing that has breath in it is not a literal phrase. It's a figure of speech. It's the same thing as if we say, do you see the Panthers game? They destroyed the Falcons. They killed the Falcons yesterday. No, they didn't destroy or kill anything. They won a ball game. But we use the figure of speech, not literally, but we use it to mean, to, to give meaning, to give emphasis to the fact, the excitement, to give flavor, emotional depth to the fact that they won the game. Well, ancient Near East battle accounts did the same thing. 
They would talk about wiping out from under the sun or leaving alive nothing that breathes, man, woman, or child. They would emphasize these things to play up the aspect of like total domination or complete obliteration when in fact, no, there were actually survivors. There were people who were left alive. They didn't kill every man, woman, child. And, and they didn't think that they did either. This was the way that they taught. So it, it, it's not really the topic of this passage because there's more on harem, and we talked about it when we were, for those of you that were here for Leviticus. But if you want to go deeper in that area and you want to study, and you're, maybe you're like, wait a minute, but it says right here, I, I don't know. Check out, there's a couple of books to check out. I'll just name them for those who are listening on the podcast. There's a book called Old Testament Ethics for the People of God by Christopher Wright, where he talks about what harem passages mean. And then there's a book by Paul Copan called Did God Commit Genocide or Did God Command Genocide? And uh, it talks in depth about what it means to practice harem and these, uh, these harsh passages that we read. So I'm just mentioning those because we're recording this and people listening to the podcast. Uh, Did God Command Genocide by Paul Copan and Old Testament Ethics for the People of God by Chris Wright. Uh, and I'll tell you all kinds of stuff about this passage. But the point is, you're going into Canaan to utterly drive out and destroy the memory of the practices of the Canaanites. That's the emphasis. So there should be no shred of Canaanite pagan idolatry in Israel. Because if it's left, it will become a thorn in your flesh. It will lure you into worshiping like the Canaanites. And if you worship like the Canaanites, here's the kicker, if you worship like the Canaanites, God will treat you like the Canaanites. That's the key to remember. God, Moses is warning Israel, do not leave a shred of Canaanite identity in this area. Or else, you'll become like it, and you will be treated like the Canaanites. The land will vomit you out. He's literally said that back in Exodus. And God will come... So, so all of this will happen, by the way, in Israel's history. Um, they're not going to take the hint. They're not going to listen to the commands. And they're going to get judged like the Canaanites two times. At the hands of the Assyrians and at the hands of the Babylonians. But, we'll finish it out, this last thing. So, completely wipe them out. One more point to make. Verse 19, when you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees of the field people that you should besiege them? However, you can cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. This is one of these last little things that God puts in His theology of warfare, is hey, if you're going to fight and lay siege to something, the goal is to win, but not at all costs. In other words, ancient warfare, ancient sieges, you would surround a city, and, and you would wait. And sieges could take weeks, they could take months, sometimes they could take years. You would just wait. Anybody that came out of the city, you'd kill them, or you'd capture them. Uh, and everybody would stay in the city. Eventually the people in the city would starve. Eventually the people in the city would run out of water, they'd run out of food, and eventually they'd surrender. Then you go in and destroy everybody. Then you go in and loot the city. Then you go do what you want. Now, to make that quicker or to make it more, um, to, 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 to generate fear, a lot of times surrounding a city, the, the army, the, it's, it wasn't their land. You know, if you're Babylon and you're besieging Jerusalem, you don't care what happens to the land around Jerusalem. So you, they'd burn all the trees, they'd destroy everything. They would just like ecologically just gut the place. 
And then when it's over and they won, they go back home. And this land is left desolate as a reminder of what happens when you dare to stand up against the mighty power of Babylon or Assyria or whatever. What God's saying is, no, you're not going to do that. Remember, this, this land I've created. So, yes, you can, you can cut down trees if you need them for building things like siege ramps or protection or equipment or whatever. You can use, yeah, that's what trees are for. But you're not going to destroy whole vineyards and orchards and, and fruit trees. And This is my land. This is stuff that I've created to serve you, to help people, you know, fruit trees and things. So no, don't, don't just go all out. Don't defoliate everything. Don't, you know, salt the earth. Don't, you know, all these kinds of things that people do. War begets cruelty. War begets violence. War begets destruction. Think about the, the those of you that remember, hopefully everybody here I know, remembers um, uh, Desert Storm. You remember what uh, Iraq did, you know, setting fire to all those uh, oil fields in Kuwait and the whole sky. I mean, it was an ecological nightmare. Or think about what we did in Vietnam with the defoliants, with napalm and Agent Orange and just completely destroying just millions of acres of, of, of land for nothing. Um, these are the kind of things that war brings out in people is to destroy the earth. And what God is saying here, at least is like for Israel, again, that's not going to be what you... You're not going to wage war like the other countries around you. So everything that uh, God's commanding, Moses commanding Israel, is, is counterproductive. It seems like really bad military advice. And that's the point of it, is God is showing Israel, you're not going to be like the nations around you. You're not going to be like, you're going to be different. And the world will notice your difference. And they'll see that it's through this relationship that you and I have, and they will be drawn to know who is this God that these people serve that does these mighty things? That's the plan. That's the purpose. That's the entire goal of the Old Testament is, is for the world to know. Even when Israel is fighting in battles, their battles are supposed to point in some way to their relationship with God. So everything they do, sacred to secular, all of it is to point to the Lord. Uh, we're out of time. We've got to run. But next week, we'll pick it back up. There's some other issues. Again, we're talking about life and death. And there's, there's some other issues about legal stuff that we touched on last week. And also battle stuff. They'll get back to what we touched on this week. So this whole section is intertwined. And we're, just, we're working our way through it. We're just taking the machete and chopping through the underbrush and, and trying to get where we're going. So stay with it. Uh, keep reading. And come back next week. We'll see you then. Bye.